This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight we begin with Frank Lovejoy, starring as Randy Stone, a reporter who covered the night beat for the Chicago Star, encountering criminals and troubled souls. Listeners were invited to join Stone as he searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. He met an assortment of people, most of them with the problem, many of them scared, and sometimes he was able to help them, sometimes he wasn't. Frank Lovejoy was a powerful and believable actor with a strong delivery, and his portrayal of Randy Stone as tough guy with humanity was perfect. The scripts were excellent, given that they had to cover much in a short time, and tonight we hear the story of Big John McAllister. Tonight, Nightbeat returns to the air for a special broadcast honoring the men and women of the working press, who day in and day out find and write the newspaper stories that keep us informed and entertained. And so, to them, this special Nightbeat salute. Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. This one began in a nightclub with jazz music and laughter and ended in a church with organ music and death. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. my job, you sort of come to terms with the night. You have to, because that's where you learn the lessons of the day. Lesson one, the night is for sorrow, the day, regret. Lesson two, you can't hide in the darkness, for the night has a thousand eyes. Lesson three to a hundred, don't go looking for the dawn with a gun, because it might come up like thunder and leave you dead on the doorstep. Sob stories fill the night. Unhappy love affairs, girls gone astray, bookkeepers who stole from their tills, men who died drunk and friendless. Last night I decided to pass them up and stroll under the bright lights and listen to laughter. So I picked out a couple of fancy bistros on the Gold Coast and started the rounds to watch champagne flow and eavesdrop on the happy stories of success, promotion, love, and friendship. But it didn't work. Like an iron filing, I was drawn to the magnet of unhappiness. It happened in the Pelican Club. He was sitting alone, 
Tall, gray-haired, rugged, a face full of some 50-odd years, I guess, and full of some other things no one could guess. There were three drinks at the bar before I made out who he was. A man who was once big in a way that only prohibition made them big. Mind if I sit down? Who are you? Randy Stone, Chicago star, Mr. McMaster's. Well, you're the first one. What first one? Who's recognized me? Oh. Well, only from your pictures. It was a long time ago. Time? I know more about time than you or that old guy they always have around on New Year's with the beard and the hay cutter. I just thought there might be a story somewhere. Sure, sure. Sit down, sit down. I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a guy who had everything. Money, friends, and future. And a bunch of old women made a law called the Volstead Act. You remember it? Yeah, yeah, but I wasn't thirsty at the time. Well, a lot of people were, everybody, in fact. You see, the law was always supposed to be for the other guy, not for them. But there were no other guys. So this fellow I'm telling you about got on the bandwagon. He bottled millions of violations of the Volstead Act with a lot of money. And a lot of trouble. Am I boring you? If you are, I asked for it, but sure not. Well, the trouble got him a lot of jail. Nineteen years old. Started in 1931, ended just two days ago. I see. Now this guy's out, and he's gonna stay clean. And they can pass a thousand stupid laws, and he's not gonna fall for any of them. He's gonna do everything the way it says in the books and live happily ever after. How's that for a story? There's a good moral, but no drama, no suspense. Good. I hope it's real bad, because I don't want you to print it. Stone, I'm flattered that you recognize me, but I paid back ten days for every one I took. All I ask is that you just let me alone in the papers. Okay, McMaster, as far as I'm concerned, you made your last copy in 1931. Stone, it's nice to come out of prison and have the first guy you meet turn out like you. Let me buy you a drink. He tried to be happy and gay after that, and I tried to help him. But there was a sadness about him that stood in the way. I wanted to ask more questions about times and places, but I didn't. Why is it when you come across the best stories, you fall all over your conscience? I know I couldn't print anything about John McMaster's, yet I was still thinking about him an hour later at police headquarters while batting the breeze with Lieutenant Curly White. The lieutenant was on his way out to cover a hotel shooting, and I went with him. It was a showy place with glass doors and ebony handrails. The night manager was staining his alpaca jacket with nervous sweat. Please, please be as quiet as possible. I, I don't want it to sound like an Elks convention in here. Just tell us what happened. We'll put it for throughout this place. I don't know where to begin exactly. Somebody phoned down. It happened on the fifth floor. Said there was a shooting. So I went up there, but I, I couldn't hear any shooting or see any. You really can after it's over. That's rather obvious. What I mean Just was... tell us, was there a shooting or wasn't there? Well, did you think I'd call you men all the way out here if there wasn't? You, you think I'm a crank or something? That I like to have loud policemen stamping through the lobby excitement? Where was it? Where was what? Because I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer in a single declarative English sentence. Now, you ready? Now, look here. I'm not a child and you mustn't treat me like one. Where was the shooting? In room 521. All right. 
Come on, man. Well, don't you want to know who it was? Oh, a man named John McMasters. We found McMasters lying on his bed. The rumpled silk counterpane was slowly changing from chartreuse to a bright crimson. Two bullets had ripped ragged holes in him through flesh and bone. His face was a shade paler and a line sadder. But when Lieutenant White questioned him, he was just as self-contained as ever. Now, John, a long time. Yeah, Kelly. You were just a flat foot then. <laughs> I was only a small fire department. You were strictly stopped by the commissioner. He did a good job. Yeah. How'd it happen, John? This? Cleaning my gun. Yeah, lose it, John. Not supposed to have a gun. Oh, you know me in the law, Curly. We sometimes didn't hit it off. Yeah, where is the gun? I swallowed it. <laughs> you don't want to say, huh? No, I don't want to say. Yeah, I don't know what makes you guys like you are, but I know it won't do any good to try and beat it out of you. Hey, Doc. Yes? Get the ambulance, Woody. We'll take him to the police hospital. No, you don't, Lieutenant. I've served my time and I'm clean. <laughs> Being shot at even in this state doesn't make you a criminal. Now take me to a general hospital. John, I, I can get a warrant. <laughs> when you get it, come and see me. Bring me some ice cream, Lieutenant. I've always liked ice cream. English <laughs> coffee, huh? I didn't have a chance to exchange a word with McMaster, so I followed him to the hospital. They put him in a room. While I was waiting for them to set up an emergency operation to take the bullets out of him... Lieutenant White let me slip in alone for a couple of minutes. Well, Scribe, you got yourself a story after all, didn't you? Well, not much of one, McMaster's a good reporter. should find out a lot more, like who shot you and why. Oh. Well, I shot myself. And just for something to do. Look, McMaster's, I'm not as old as you or as informed in the ways of crime, but... I have a fair idea of how tough it is to come out of prison and start all over. I want you to know I'd be willing to help you if there's any place that you need help within the law. Just to get a story? I have a job that says I'm supposed to bring in stories, sure, but that isn't what I mean. Stone, it's just the way I said earlier tonight. It's a pleasure to meet someone like you. And if there was anything I could tell you or any way you could help me, you'd be the first to know. Let's put it this way. I have nothing to say to you. Now, come and see me tomorrow. Maybe I'll have a story for you then. This was a riddle. His way of life, his long prison term, had equipped him with a certain stoicism that was almost impossible to penetrate. I could only stand and wait, at least I thought so at the moment. Lieutenant White was standing in the corridor when I came up. Find out anything, Randy? Nothing, Curly. Look, Randy, you're not pulling professional immunity on me, are you? I'm telling you the truth, Lieutenant. Uh, well, do me a favor. Oh, my badge and my ID card. And what's this for? Well, I'm carrying those. I'm a policeman. When I don't have them, I'm just a citizen. Now, this isn't for print, but in that room, on that bed, hell, I squat a man. You couldn't fight it. Everyone who had contact with John McMaster felt the same way. Despite his background, despite his code, despite his record, there was quite a man. It occurred to me I should know more about him, so I went back to the star offices and poked around in the morgue file. 
Its folders start at 1912 and was sat with yellowed clippings all the way through 1931. The clippings didn't mention a family or much else except a lawyer associate, a man named Julian Glass. When I found out all I could from the clippings, I went back to his hotel to see if I could wangle another once-over of McMaster's room. No, 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 I'm sorry. A reporter or not, it simply can't be done. The police left explicit orders. Uh, yes, uh, I know, but um, is there uh, anything you need these days, like a new sport coat or a couple of golf clubs? Mr. Stone, do I look corruptible? Well, uh, excuse me. Yes, madam, what did you want? Mr. McMaster's room, please. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Mr. McMaster's was taken to the hospital shortly ago. What happened to him? Somebody shot him. He's, he's still alive? I wouldn't know. Uh, why don't you call... Oh, find me, ma'am. I can tell you about John McMaster's. Who are you? Uh, Mr. Stone is a reporter. He's still alive at the county hospital, and as far as I know, he's under excellent care. Thank you. Would you mind telling me what your connection is with McMaster's? I have no connection. Goodbye. Oh, uh, just a minute. You must at least know him. Young man, you either get out of my way or I'll call a policeman. And she could do it, so I stepped aside and let her walk out of the hotel. But I followed not far behind her. She was middle-aged, gray-haired, and well-dressed, and she got into a good-looking car. And I got her number. Then I called one. Lieutenant White. Hi, Randy Stone, Lieutenant. Can you give me a rundown on the license number? Oh, no, not at this hour. The files are all locked. But you know where the key is. How about it? For a story I'm working on. If you help me tonight, maybe I'll help you someday. What would your reporters do without us? Uh, All right. Give it to me. It's Illinois. One, three, seven, five, nine, six. Illinois. One, three, seven, five, nine, six. All right. Call back later, Stone. I knew it would take some time for White to run it down, so I made my way back to County Hospital for a checkup on McMaster's condition. The reception desk seemed reluctant to talk about him and referred me to the head nurse who sent me to the surgical OD who took me to the chief doctor. He told me to look into a crystal ball. He's gone. We have no idea where. How could he be gone? And we started to give him a transfusion. He jumped up suddenly, knocked down two male nurses, grabbed his pants, and ran out of the hospital. Simple as that. I thought he was in a critical condition. He was. Now he's in mortal danger. Running around town hemorrhaging from two bullet wounds. Well... I'd give him an hour, maybe two at the most, to live. John McMasters is a walking dead man. NBC is bringing you Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Take it from me, cats aren't the only animals who have a corner on curiosity. Consider also the species Randestonus, reporter-type animal. The pets? When the next big shot of the roaring 20s, minus a quarter or two of blood from bullet wounds, walks out of a hospital bed in the middle of the night, reporter walks too. Well, call it curiosity or just say I liked what I'd seen of the guy. All I know is I didn't want Big John McMasters to bleed to death walking around town, so I went out looking for him. And because I thought he might go to a friend's, I looked up his only known friend, another man of the same period, Julian Glass, attorney at law. He lived not in a glass house, but in Cicero, in the crummier half of a yellow duplex. 
Young man, the drugstore delivers what I need most. The telegraph office, what I dread most. Obviously, you represent neither concern, and therefore, you are no concern of mine. Now, wait a minute. Are you Mr. Glass? I am he, and I am drunk and disheveled, and it's three o'clock in the morning. I'd like to talk with you. May I come in? You may not. Now, this isn't exactly the hour for making calls, but I did stop by and pick up something to take the edge off. Eh? It's bonded. Oh, inside. Oh, thank you. Uh, your apology. There you are, Mr. Glass. Ah. Now then, we'll make a bargain. As long as this lasts, you will last. Speak. I'm looking for a man. Ah, the entire world is looking for a man. Just one man. A man may so blindly presume who will break off these shackles that bind us and lead us forth into eternal justice. Yes, and yes, man. sure, but that's not the man I'm talking about. I'm a friend of John McMaster's. You? You come from that place? Signs are not on you. The pallor's not with you. No. Oh, you lied. I didn't say that I was a convict. I'm a reporter. McMaster's is out of prison. I'm aware of that. But did you know he was in an accident tonight or he was attacked? I don't know which. Anyhow, he was shot, and an hour ago he left his hospital bed. I thought he might have come to you. What made you think that? You're the only man I know who might be his friend. Has he contacted you tonight? He has not. Is he here? He is not. Mr. Glass, if he isn't hospitalized soon, he'll die. Why is the phenomena of death so persistently alarming? So you die. They all die, usually from a bullet. Well, Mr. Glass... You've I... impressed me with the urgency of his situation... John McMasters is not here, nor has he been here, nor has he contacted me. Well, I was just trying. I believe you. Your concern for him is a distressing irritation. What's the reason for it? As I said, I'm his friend. I like him. I think he deserves to live. You? His friend? Now, his friends for the most part are gone, like the years, like Homburg Hats and the Charleston and Lime Ricky. Ones who are left are broken and tired with old faces. Faces like mine, like his, and they should be gone, too. Another age is here. Are you sure you're his friend? I once thought so. He once thought so. But now, I I haven't enough strength to be his friend. Oh, Mr. Glass, I... Hello, people. Who's your friend, Julie? Mr. Glass to you. All right, Mr. Glass. Now, tell me, who's this? This is Mr. Stone. Mr. Stone, this is Mr. Engel, Marty Engel. I'm an associate of Mr. Glass's. Mr. Stone, I haven't seen you around before. Obviously, you just met Mr. Glass. Or you'd never, never offer him a drink. I wouldn't? No. You see, I sort of look after Mr. Glass. We're old friends. I was his office boy once, then a no republic. And when I finally got my degree, I became his partner, more or less. Isn't that right, Mr. Glass? Marty, you don't have to do this in front of Mr. And Stone. since Mr. Glass has fallen on some bitter days, shall we say I've undertook to assist him? Perhaps uh, I can help you? I don't think so, Mr. Engel. Then uh, would you be good enough to leave? Marty. Shut up! Mr. Glass, give Mr. Stone his bottle. Go ahead. Here. There you are, Mr. Stone. You were just leaving, weren't you? 
Julian Glass stood helplessly by watching. The look in his eyes held the same sort of sadness I'd seen in McMaster's eyes. But they were different, too. They held a weakness. The strong, sad eyes were somewhere else in the city, walking alone. And the lifeblood was slowly draining from the body that sparked them. I wanted to find McMaster's more than I wanted anything in my life, so I went to the only other source I knew, the license number that belonged to a gray-haired woman with a kind face. Lieutenant White had done his duty. Manny, I shouldn't do this sort of thing. Now, come on, come on. Tell me about the license number. Pleasure plates. Car owned by a pony named Constance Gardner, age 22, this city. Address? That's the 900 block at Sheridan Road. The what number? Look it up yourself. I did what I'm not supposed to do already. I drove out there with a the feeling that I was racing death. I was in the 900 block right in back of the Shawnee County Club, a nice big colonial house in a nice neighborhood. The sky was beginning to quiver and shake off the blackness of night. I parked in front, wondering whether or not I should ring the bell, and then I saw a light in the back at the kitchen. Everybody seemed to be staying up that night. Oh, come in. You must be the man from the floor. No, no, I'm afraid not. My name is Randy Stone. I'm from the Chicago Star. Oh, you reporters do work all hours. But we aren't being married until seven. Are you Constance Gardner? Yes, but you want to talk to Bob, not me. He's the one who's rich and famous. I'm nobody. I think I want to talk to you, Miss Gardner. Well... All right, Mr. Stone, but I have so many things to do this... Hello, oh, bride. Say good morning to your bride. Bob! Bob, you shouldn't be here. It's bad luck or something. Oh, Mr. Stone, this is my fiancé, Bob Meredith. Bob, Mr. Stone's from the papers. Hi. Hi. Mrs. Stone, I want to interview you. Now, now, looking at her, wouldn't you say I'm the luckiest man in the world? <laughs> I'm glad to meet you, Meredith, and congratulations. Thanks. Constance, Constance, you simply must hurry up... Why, Bob, what are you doing here? You know it's not right. Mother, I want you to meet Mr. Stone. He's a reporter. Mr. Stone, this is my mother, Mrs. Gardner. How do you do, Mr. Stone? It was the same gray-haired woman I'd met in the hotel a few hours before, and I had to hand it to her. She looked right at me like she was meeting me for the first time. We shook hands. Hers was steady and firm, and her eyes didn't leave mine, but there was something in her look that pleaded don't. Mr. Stone, perhaps Mother can help you. Excuse us, please. Surely. I'll have to get rid of Bob and get some things done. Right, of course. Well, that's my cue. Uh, so long, Mr. Stone. Uh, gonna cover this wedding? Well, if I don't, one of the other boys will. Nice to have met you. Bye. They look like a real nice pair of kids, Mrs. Gardner. They are. But I doubt if that means anything to you and your newspaper. Well, you were trying to reach John McMaster's at his hotel tonight. You obviously have some connection with him. I don't care about that or the story that goes with it, Mrs. Gardner. I'm only looking for him. Is he here? Of course not. He's in a hospital. You told me that yourself. Well, he left the hospital. He walked out. He's wandering Chicago somewhere right now in a serious condition. Oh, no. No. He must have had a good reason for doing such a thing. I want to find him and take him back to the hospital. Now, Mrs. Gardner, if you know where he is or what he's doing, tell me. I only want to help. Please, he may be dying. I believe you, Mr. Stone. You have any idea where he could be? There's something you should know. Something that shouldn't be written in the papers. Please. That lovely girl who just walked out of this room is John McMaster's daughter. In 1931, I adopted her and raised her as my own. No one knew about it. John promised he would never write us or bother us in any way, and he's kept his word. But you were trying to see him tonight. Why? Two days before he was released, a man came here. He said he knew Constance was not my real daughter. He said he wanted money to keep it quiet. He'd expose her. 
Did you pay this man off? No, I, I contacted John and told him. He said not to worry, that he'd take care of it. He got shot tonight trying to take care of it, and he's out right now still taking care of it. Who was the man? Oh, I don't know, Mr. Stone. I never saw him before. He just said that John would know who he was. Oh? Was he big, tall, short? He'd been drinking heavily. It seemed cultured. But... Julian Glass, a lawyer. He'd know about the trust fund and the adoption. He probably handled it all. Julian Glass was a drunkard, true, but he didn't strike me as a blackmailer. I was thinking of his friend, Marty Engel, as I drove out to Cicero as fast as I could. Three squad cars were already there, and then I noticed with a sinking heart that a hearse was also there. I was too late. A milkman filled in the details. It was awful. It happened so fast. Suppose you tell it fast. I, I'm delivering my milk. When I see this tall guy with a gray hair come staggering up to the steps, sort of pale. He pounds on this door here. Mr. Glasses? That's right. A young guy with a briefcase opens the door. The police say his name is Marty Engel. Yeah, go on. The young guy, sort of wise-like, says, Hello, you come to pay off, huh? And the big guy says, Yeah, Marty. And he opens up and Engel goes down. But he ain't dead. Yet. And then uh, Julian Glass reels into the picture and he falls in front of Engel's gun. Just as he pointed at the other guy. Glass stops two slugs and he goes down. Then what? The big guy finishes off Engel. Then he goes over and looks at Glass. He sort of sighs, maybe a tear, and then he walks out. You try to stop him? You think I'm nuts? With two guys dead already? It was terrible. Terrible. I need myself a drink. That's what I need. I need myself a drink. And I don't mean milk. It was pretty obvious that Julian Glass did have the strength to be John McMaster's friend after all. He died for him. The police had already thrown a cordon around the neighborhood for the man three witnesses had described as the killer of Marty Engel. As for me, I got out of talking distance right away. It was easy to see it had taken McMaster's half the night and most of his strength to get to Marty Engel, but I was certain he still had some strength left. The sun was up by the time I drove out past Evanston, around the lake, into Wilmette, and stopped at St. Vincent's Church. The ceremony was just about over. I stood in the back as Constance Gardner and Robert Meredith were made man and wife. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, I now pronounce you man and wife. They turned around and started down the aisle. That was when I noticed the tall, gray-haired man leaning quietly against the door. Hello, Stone. What are you doing here? Covering your daughter's wedding, McMasters. <laughs> I knew you were a smart guy and that you'd find out about everything. They don't like murder in this state, no matter what the reason. Marty Ingle was trying to buy that kid of mine out of her life. He found out who she was when he worked for Julie Glass. I had to stop him. Poor Julie. He did all he could, but... I'd better get you to a hospital. No, I want to... <laughs> so, Stone, hold me up. Don't let me fall right here and ruin a yeah. wedding. Thank you. Hold right. me up, please. Sure. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Oh, Bob, there's Mr. Stone. Oh, yes. H Hello, Stone. Uh, thanks for covering it yourself. You can tell all of your readers I'm the happiest bride in the world. And quote me, please. I'll do that. Oh, Mr. Stone, do I know your friend? He seems familiar. No. You didn't know me at all. I, 
I'm sort of an associate of Mr. Stone's. I was glad I could be at your wedding. Well, I'm glad, too. Hey, you've got to go now. Bye. Well, I told you you'd have a story this morning, Randy. You're going to print it? Nope. Thanks, Stone. Like I said, you're the... You're the kind of a guy I'm glad to meet. Big John McMaster's died in the taxi cab on the way to the hospital. And there's no maybe about whether it was better that way or not. So I'm writing a story. It's all about laws that made criminals and laws that made them not criminals. It's kind of a wandering piece of copy that doesn't really get anywhere and never really solves anything. But it doesn't mention any names because I don't think that'd solve anything either. Maybe Julian Glass was right when he said, They're all gone now and the ones who are left are broken and tired with old faces and they should be gone too. I wonder what he'd have to say now that he's gone with them. Copy, boy. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's story was written by John Michael Hayes and E. Jack Newman, with music by Frank Worth. John McMasters was played by Bill Conrad. Frank Lovejoy may soon be seen in Warner Brothers' I Was a Communist for the FBI. And now, here again is our star, Frank Lovejoy. Someone once said, a guy meets so many interesting people in the newspaper business, and somehow they all turn out to be newspaper men. Well, in portraying a reporter on Night Beat, I've met my share of the press, and I'd like to double that quotation in spades. Tonight, I want to congratulate the new president of the National Press Club, Carson F. Lyman, and salute Frank Rogers, Washington correspondent of the Los Angeles Daily News, who was elected secretary of that organization. They're a great bunch of folks, these guys and gals of the working press, and I'm proud to be permitted to portray one of them. Good night. Night Beat came to you from Hollywood. Stay tuned for The Life of Riley. Time now for William Bendix in The Life of Riley. Producer Irving Brecker pitched the radio series for friend Groucho Marx under the title The Flotsam Family. But the sponsor balked at what had been an, an essentially straight head-of-household role for Marx. Brecker then saw William Bendix as taxicab company owner Tim McGuerin in Hal Roach's The McGuerins of Brooklyn, 1942. Radio historian Gerald Nachman quotes Becker as saying, he was a Brooklyn guy and there was just something about him. I thought this guy could play it. He had made a few films like Lifeboat, but he was not a name yet. So I took the Flotsam family script, revised it, made it a Brooklyn family, took out the flippancies, and made it more meat and potatoes, and thought of a new title, The Life of Riley. Bendix's delivery and the spin he put on his lines really made it work. The reworked script cast Bendix as blustering Chester A. Riley, 
a wing riveter at the fictional Cunningham Aircraft Plant in California. His frequent exclamation of indignation, what a revolting development this is, became one of the most famous catchphrases of the 1940s. It's new, it's amazing, it's Prell, P-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo. Yes, Procter & Gamble's new Radiant Cream Shampoo in the handy tube. brings you the life of Riley. Well, the shampoo that removes unsightly dandruff, leaves hair radiantly lovely, presents the life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. For ten years, Chester A. Riley has worked for the Stevenson Aircraft Corporation in Los Angeles. And now, at long last, he is about to be rewarded for his industry and loyalty. For ten long years, Riley has been waiting for this very day. How much of a bonus are you going to get, Pop? Ah, uh, see now. Tomorrow, it'll be ten years I worked for the company. I get $25 for each year of uninterrupted service. So, that's 25 times 10 equals... Uh, uh, I'm going to carry four... $250, Pop. Yeah, five and carry three. 25 and times 10 is 250, Dad. 38 and carry five. For heaven's sake, Riley, 250. Three, carry nine plus 38 minus seven. <laughs> Multiplied by seven. I got it. $250. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, that's a lot of money. When do you collect? Tomorrow. Let's get a television set, huh, Pop? How about it, No, 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 let them do it. No television in this house. I ain't paying 250 bucks so I can get cockeyed. (laughs) Well, what this family needs is a car. Oh, but a television set Now, wait a minute. It took me ten years to get this dough. We ain't going to spend it foolishly. You're absolutely right, dear. Sure, I got to think of the future. Oh, you're going to put it in the bank. No, no, I'm going to buy a mink. A mink? Yeah, you know, one of them little animals that dresses up like women. (laughs) Yeah, I want to start a mink ranch. What in the world are you talking about? I have an income. I read an article about it. There's a fortune in it. You start with only one mink, and in a few months you got two minks, and then four minks, and then eight minks. From one mink? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You mean it's like the bees? Oh, okay, so then we'll get two minks, a boy mink and a girl mink. We'll introduce them to each other, and they fall in love and get married, and before you know it, some rich dame on Park Avenue is wearing a mink coat, and we got $5,000 in the bank. <laughs> now, don't be ridiculous, Riley. The minute you get that money tomorrow, it goes into the bank, and it stays there. Now, just a minute, Peg. Who worked 10 years to get that, though, you or me? You. When I get that check, who's it going to be made out to, you or me? You. And who's the head of the house around here, you or me? You. So who's going to decide what's to be done with this money, you or me? Me. (laughs) Well, that's logical. Mm -hmm. It's time we had a little reserve in the bank. What for? Well, suppose you lose your job. Me? Lose my (laughs) job? Be silly. I'm setting that job for life. Why, Mr. Stevenson would never fire me. Only today he said to me, Riley, I've been watching you for ten years, and believe me, you're not going anyplace. <laughs> yes, sir, I'm set for life. 
Well, anything can happen. No, not to me. Why, Stevenson Aircraft couldn't get along without me. Oh, you think so? I know so. You don't understand, Peg. I may not have a classy office with a fancy title, but they couldn't do without me for one minute. Because the plant operates like a big machine. And a machine may have hundreds of parts. But if one little nut is missing, goes to pieces. <laughs> and at Stevenson Aircraft, I am that nut. <laughs> Hi, Gillis. Hey, come on. Come on, lunch. Oh, Riley, I'm in trouble. Big trouble. Yeah, what's up, Gillis? Riley, the waste has happened. What, Gillis? What? Did your wife leave you? I said the waste, not the best. <laughs> well, what happened? I'm going to get fired. Fired? Why? You know that new machine they just got? The one with the magno-heterodyne electrodynamic gravitator with the bicyclonic supercharger? Yeah. I smashed it. How? I tried to open a bottle of Coca-Cola with it. <laughs> Oh, Gillis, does the boss know about this? Oh, them? yeah, Stevens is looking for me right now to fire me. I've been avoiding him, but he keeps chasing me all over the plant. Riley, what am I going to no, do? No, 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 take it easy, Gillis. But he'll fire easy. me, sure. What'll I do? No money in the bank. I still owe for the furniture I bought last year. Now, relax, Gillis. And I already sold the furniture. <laughs> and that dough's gone, too. Fired. Believe me, I don't pay, to be honest. Now, now, you take it easy, old pal. You won't get fired. Your friend Riley will see to that. You? Uh, Don't kid me, Riley. What can you do? Well, I, uh, well I'll i take the rap for you. I'll say that I've done it. But then you'll get fired. <laughs> oh, not me. Stevenson would never let me go. You see, this plant operates like a big machine. I know. You're a nut. <laughs> but I can't let you take the risk. There's no risk. Why, Stevenson and me, we're, we're like buddies. He's my buddy. Yes! I want to talk to you. Here he is. Now, remember, I done it. No, 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 Riley. You've got a wife and kids, oh. too. I won't let you do it. No, 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 I won't let you. A guy would have to be the lowest thing on earth to let his best pal... No, 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 I won't let you. Well, Gillis, so here you are. Riley done it. He smashed the machine. Riley done it. <laughs> That's right, Mr. Stevenson. I done it, not Gillis. All right, Riley. You're fired. Oh, thanks, boys. You see, Gillis, what I tell you. Don't get... You can't do it. You made... Fired? No. Boss, Mr. Stevenson, buddy, wait, come back. Be... What a revolting development this is. And because of Gillis, you lost your job? Yeah, fired. Oh, gee, oh, Pop. Oh, that's terrible. Fired, but I'll have my revenge. Just watch how that whole plant will crumble. Today I'm fired. In a few days, 3,000 men will be out of work. Oh, but Riley, you didn't do anything. You're going right back and tell Stevenson you didn't do it. No, I ain't no squealer. But Riley... Besides, if he can fire me after 10 years, then I don't want to work for him. I fixed him good when I left. <laughs> you don't know it, but I took along the only key to the washroom. <laughs> to me. If you admitted smashing that machine, he had a right to fire you. That's right. Take his side. Defend that no-good, hard-hearted monster. Daddy, why don't you go back and explain? No. I got my pride. I don't want his job. I'll get another job just like that. Well, I, I, I'm sure you could hold down plenty of jobs, dear, but 
Well, suppose you don't get a break. What'll we live on? Don't, don't get panicky, Peg. We'll manage fine. You're, you're forgetting we got that $250 reserve in the bank. <laughs> what $250? Well, the bonus that I... That I... I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I got fired three hours before I became eligible. Give me a knife. I want to kill myself. Riley, control yourself. Oh, what did I do? What did I do? Now, now, don't take it like that, dear. It'll be all right. We'll starve. All I got to my name is a key to the washroom. <laughs> Listen to this. What's the most amazing thing? Oh, what, Mother? Well, this ad here in the paper. This market's got a big sale. And listen, butter, 40 cents a pound. Hamburger, 29 cents a pound. Eggs, 30 cents a dozen. Well, I can't believe it. There must be something wrong. Well, there certainly is. That newspaper's almost 10 years old. (laughs) What? Well, look at the date. Oh, well, for heaven's sake. Where did this come from? Well, Junior's been collecting old newspapers and selling them, and sometimes he reads the funnies here in the house and leaves the papers around. Mm. I knew it was too good to be true. But for a minute there, I thought I'd figured out a way to live on your father's unemployment insurance. Oh, is that you, Riley? Yeah, it's me. Oh, any luck, dear? Nah, nothing. I've been everywhere, Peg. They ain't taking on men. They're laying them off. Well, what about that man you were supposed to see? Hmm? Oh, him. Well, he offered me a job in a laundromat, but I didn't like it. What kind of job? Running a crap game for the men who were waiting there. (laughs) Hey, what'll I do? I I don't collect unemployment insurance till the end of the week. Hi, everybody. Hey, guess what? I made three bucks today helping out at the drugstore. Oh, that's wonderful, Junior. Did you hear that, Riley? Yeah, that's very good, Junior. Uh, Peg, where's my cigars? I left the box on the piano last night. Oh, the box was empty, dear. I threw it out. Oh. Babs, you got a cigar? I don't smoke, Daddy. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Are you sure there's no cigars in the house? Well, if you're short, Papa, let you have a dime for a few cigars. Here. Just a minute. Just what do you think you're doing? Well, well you're broke, aren't you? I want to you give... You've got your nerve. What do you take me for, anyway? A bum in the park? Gee, Papa, I didn't... I haven't make... sunk so low that I have to depend on my kids for cigar money. Now, Riley, Junior didn't mean anything. I ain't legit, you know. I don't take handouts from nobody. I don't care if I never smoke a cigar again. Well, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Leave the room, Junior. And don't come back here till you learn how to behave to your father. Go on, take a long walk. And if you walk past the drugstore, buy me a cigar. <laughs> Peg, I... Well, what are you doing with that suitcase? Well, Peg, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. What? I can't get a job here in Los Angeles. I'm going west to San Francisco. <laughs> Guy told me there's lots of jobs there. Why, I won't let you go. I'll send for you and the kids as soon as I land something, Peg. Now, Riley, you'll get a job here. It, it may take a little time, but we'll be all right. I can get a job. Oh, no. No, it's bad enough the kids are working. What do you think people will say when they find out my wife is working? They'll say I'm one of those kept men that women support for their good looks. They'll never say that about you. (laughs) Riley, 
listen, you're you're being very foolish about this. You can get your old job back if you'll just go to Mr. Stevenson no, and... I told you before, I'll never go back to him. I've got my pride. But you haven't even got the money to go to San Francisco. Oh, yes, I have. I borrowed $40 from Gillis. And he ain't even charging me interest. Oh, please, dear, I'll phone your boss. No, this is final. I have made up my head. I've got to go. My train leaves in an hour. Hey, what's up? Where are you going, Daddy? Your father's going to San Francisco to look for work. San Francisco? Well, Pop, Daddy, what are you what going there for? I haven't got time to explain. Your mother will tell you everything. I've got, got to go now. Well, we'll go to the station with you, darling. No, I don't like sad partners. It'll be better if we say goodbye here. Well, uh, g- goodbye, Junior. Well, goodbye, Pop. Look after your mother and your sister. You're a big boy now. You've got responsibilities. You're taking my place as the head of the family. So do everything your mother tells you. <laughs> I will, Pop. Goodbye, Fancy. Goodbye, Daddy. Study good and don't stay out late. I don't have to tell you to watch out with the boys. You're a big girl now. I trust you 100%. Junior, write me every week what boy she goes out with. (laughs) Well, Peg, take care of yourself. Don't work too hard. I'll I'll write you every day, and I'll send for you soon. Won't be long. (laughs) All right. Now, 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 Peg, no tears. You know how I can't stand people who cry. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, Goodbye, Bob. Why are you all crying? I'm only going to San Francisco. There's nothing to cry about. You should be happy. I'm going away to make a new life for us. I I feel like singing. San Francisco, open your golden gate. You let no stranger wait outside your door. San Francisco. Before rejoining the Rileys, here's some news for our friends in Texas. The new Life of Riley motion picture opens in 100 Texas theaters starting tomorrow. And the star of the movie, Riley himself, William Bendix, along with other members of the cast, will make personal appearances in five theaters. Tomorrow, they will be in Fort Worth, Monday in Austin, Tuesday in Houston, Wednesday in San Antonio, and Thursday in Dallas. Yes, sir, this week, the great state of Texas is living the life of Riley. And now back to the life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. And we find Riley en route to San Francisco determined to make a fresh start in life. Uh, excuse me, lady. Is this seat taken? Why, no, it isn't. It's okay if I sit here? Oh, go right ahead. <laughs> oh, say, that's a, that's a cute little baby you got there. Babies are crazy about me. Kichiku, kichiku, Oh, dear, he's hungry. Oh. Would you mind holding him while I see if I can get him some warm milk from the dining car? Hold him? Oh, oh sure. You, just give him to me. Oh, thank you. There. Now you'll be a good little baby, Lamekins. I won't be long. No, no, no. There, there, there. No, don't cry. I know just how you feel. I guess you're leaving home, too. But don't you cry. You'll you be brave like me. It's all for the best. There comes a time in everybody's life when they got to make a change. <laughs> and I think the time is now. 
No, 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 don't be a crybaby. You ain't the only one who's got trouble. I feel like crying, too, but I don't let myself. Now, let's try and forget our troubles. We won't think about them. We'll, we'll look out the window, huh? You like that? And look, look at all those pretty billboards. Look at that pretty lady. She's a movie actress, Jean Crane. You, you see what it says? Now playing apartment for Peggy. Peggy. Oh, my little Peggy. No, 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 no. Stop crying. I, I can't stand crybabies. Now, look. Look, there's another pretty sign. That's an ocean. And the beach. Swimming sun in Santa Barbara. Barbara. My little Barbara. My baby. Stop If you can't control yourself, I won't let you look out the window. I'll give you one more chance. Look. Look, there's a funny sign. You see the man with the bare feet? Oh, look how big they are. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, that one says, feet burn, use absorbing junior. Junior. <laughs> junior, my little junior. <laughs> I can't stand it. I want to go home to my family. Glendale, next stop. Glendale. Glendale. I'm getting off here. I can take a streetcar home. <laughs> Oh, shut up. I got my own troubles. <laughs> I wonder where that streetcar line is. I've been walking over an hour. Looks like I wound up in some kind of a park. I wonder where I am. Welcome to Forest Lawn. <laughs> it's you. Yes, it is I indeed. The Undertaker. <laughs> you look tired, Riley. Uh, you ain't kidding, Digger. I'm ready to drop. Well, you've come to the right place. <laughs> oh, my feet. Is it okay if I lie down here? Certainly. But keep your eyes open. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll miss the beautiful scenery. What are you doing here, Digger? Oh, this is where we hold the weekly meeting of the UEPPC. UEPPC? Yes, the Undertakers, Embalmers, and Pallbearers Pyramid Club. <laughs> it's a fascinating game. Every Undertaker brings two people. And pretty soon, the Undertaker on the top of the list has more people than he can handle. <laughs> But what are you doing here, Riley? I thought you were bound for San Francisco. Well, I was, but I got off the train. I just couldn't stand being away from the family. Oh, yes, I'm the same way. I left my family only once. That was last year when I attended the annual Mortician's Exposition in Tombstone, Arizona. <laughs> Believe me, there's a dead town. And I was the lonesomest stiff in it. I'm... Kind of ashamed to face my family again. Dude. Nonsense. You've made a wise decision. Los Angeles is your town. Your home. Yeah, you're, you're right, Digger. It's the greatest town in the world. They can have all of San Francisco. All I want is a little plot of ground right here. And someday you'll get it. <laughs> Real estate prices are dropping every day. Now you must hurry back to your miserable family. I'm sure they miss you. I'm leaving now. I'll drive you home. Oh, well, that's swell of you, Digger. You know, this is the first time I've ever been here in Forest Lawn. And this will be the first time I ever drove anyone out. <laughs> well, come along. We'd better be shoveling off. <laughs>
I'm home. Nobody home. Oh, they probably went to a movie to cheer themselves up. Oh, I got a great little family. And I'll make it up to them for what they're going through. I'll get a job right here in town. I'll make good for them. Where's today's paper? I'm going to answer every single ad. Where's that paper? Oh, here it is. Now, where's the classified ads? Holy smoke, look at that. Butter, 40 cents a pound. Hamburger, 29 cents a pound. Oh, oh, oh. We're like going to hold a peg and show her this. Trying to tell me the prices are so high she can get more dough out of me. Oh, oh, oh. I have to get up pretty early in the morning to fool Chester Rally. Where are those ads? Oh, look at the size of that headline. These papers. They take the least little thing, make a big sensation out of it. Japs attack Pearl Harbor. Where are those ads with... Japs attack Pearl Harbor? Again? That's MacArthur. What's he doing over there in Tokyo anyway, playing Mahjong? I got to report to the plant right away. This is no time for foolish pride. My country comes first. You say he went to San Francisco, Mrs. Riley? Oh, yes, Mr. Stevenson, this afternoon. But I thought if you wrote to him, he'd come back. After all, he didn't really break that machine. Well, don't worry, Mrs. Riley. I'll get him back here. And, and please, don't tell him that I came to see you. Mr. Stevenson. Riley, what are you doing here? I got off the train, and lucky I did. Stevenson, I'm willing to take my job back. This is no time for personal pride. Duty comes first. And at a time like this, we've all... Put out that light. What? Put it out, I say. Don't you civilians ever learn nothing? He's drunk. <laughs> I'll overlook that crap, Stevenson, because this thing is bigger than both of us. We've fought it through together once and we can do it again. And like before, I'm taking my position in the front lines. The man behind the man behind the gun. Really? We're all in this together now. We gotta work. Save fat. Save gas. Is this trip necessary? Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. <laughs> what are you raving about? Don't you know there's a war going on? Isolationists? What war? Japan has done it again! Wait a minute. We're at war with Japan? Don't you read the papers? Of course we're at war. Since when? Since then. Here, look, look. December the 7th, 1941. They not only picked the same date, they picked the same year. <laughs> Darn clever, those Japanese. <laughs> Wait a minute. December 7th, 1940. I take back what I said. I don't want to work for you, Stevenson. I got my pride, you know. Oh, come now, Riley. As long as you didn't go to San No, sir, I ain't going to work for you. The only time I'll ever work for you, Stevenson, is when the enemy attacks. Chester A. Riley. The enemy is attacking. I report for duty. <laughs> children. Save fat, save gas. <laughs> oh, Daddy, you're a screw. All right, all right. That's enough. Cut it out. Anybody can make a mistake. You got no right laughing at me. Have a little respect. I got my job back, you know. Thanks to me. Now, I ain't a bum anymore. I got dough in my pocket. 
Oh, that's right. You got paid today. You bet I did. I got it right here. 10, 15, 20, 40, 50, 55, 10. <laughs> oh, it's good to feel money in your hands again. <laughs> well, you hand over $35 right away. It goes toward the rent. Oh, okay. Here you are. That leaves me $24.10. Oh, Daddy, I just got to have $8 for school books. I've got to buy them all. Okay, okay, okay. Here you are, $8. Still leaves $16.10. Well, I need $10 to pay Green Spreckles grocery. They gave us credit and I... Okay, okay, here. And we got our final notice from the phone company, $6, and we just got to pay... Okay, okay, here. Well, at least I got 10 cents left. Well, Pop, you owe me that for the three cigars I bought you. <laughs> Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Dr. and Gamble invite you to join us again next week to hear The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley. The hilarious new Life of Riley motion picture is now showing in Chicago, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. It opens tomorrow in Boston, Fort Worth, and many other cities throughout Texas, Washington, and Oregon. The script is by Reuben Shipp, Alan Lipscott, and Dick Powell. Mrs. Riley is Paula Winslow. Digger O'Dell is John Brown. The Life of Riley is produced by Irving Brecker. And remember, you can still get a lovely rainproof rain scarf from Prell. Simply send your name and address with 25 cents and any size Prell carton to Prell, Cincinnati, Ohio. Be sure to state your color choice, rose, blue, green, or yellow. Remember, that's Prell, Cincinnati, Ohio. This offer good in the United States only. And this is Ken Niles reminding you to listen again next Friday when Procter & Gamble bring you a full hour of entertainment. First, Red Skelton, and then, The Life of Riley. Good night. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, followed by The Dennis Day Show. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.